ชั่วโมงนี้ This is case 33 from the Denkoroku. Hongren. The case. Hongren met Zen master Dao Jin on the road to Huangmei. Dao Jin asked him, "What is your name?" Hongren replied, "I have an essence, but it is not a common name." Dao Jin then asked, "What name is that?" Hongren replied, "It is the essence of Buddhahood." Dao Jin then asked. So you don't have a name? Hongren replied, "None, because essence is empty." Dao Jin then recognized his capacity as Dharma vehicle and accepted him as a close disciple. Later on, Hongren succeeded to Dao Jin, becoming the fifth patriarch of Zen. Kazan's commentary. There is a name that is not received from one's parents, not received from one's ancestors, not inherited from Buddhas, not inherited from Zen masters. It is called Buddha nature or essence of Buddhahood. Zen study is basically a way to reach the fundamental and clarify the essence of mind. If you don't reach the fundamental, you live and die in vain, misunderstanding yourself and others. As for what is this fundamental essence, your features may differ as you die and are born over and over again. But at all times, there is an inherent awareness. Kazan's verse: The moon bright, the water pure, the autumn sky is clear. How could there be a fleck of cloud? Spotting this great clarity. So before we go into this, I just want to note that uh, these days we are dealing with uh, obvious technical challenges. As we go along, to keep everything going, to keep the connection between our in-person practice and our Zoom practice, and we are learning on the go how to do it better and better and better. So just before this day show, there was a technical issue we needed to take care of, and it seems as if. We gotta take care of that so we can do what we need to do. So we can go back to practice, as if we pause something. This is just another way the mind chops up reality between what we are supposed to be doing and what we don't want to do, but we end up having to do. In reality, it's not so. So in reality, that was taking care of a technical issue is nothing other than practice. It's not between segments of practice. It's not interfering with practice. Nothing does. 
unless we define it as a gap, a break, an issue, being stuck, getting nervous about it, feeling like we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Well, what else are we supposed to be doing? But how do we know we're not supposed to be looking at the phone, trying to figure out how to fix the technical matter? Who's saying that? Is there anything that's not practice? So, something to keep in mind to work with. So today, moving along the chronological trail of Dharma transmissions as we have been past few weeks. Today we meet Honglen, who succeeded to Dao Jin, becoming the fifth patriarch of Zen. Honglen was a pivotal teacher in the Zen tradition, expanding the unique teachings of Bodhidharma in a large scale, much larger than previous teachers up to this point and then setting up the groundwork for Zen's great proliferation after his passing. In Zen's Chinese heritage book, it says that Honglen's students spread throughout China, exerting enormous influence on the religious fabric of the society. They later on established three prominent Zen lineages, including the dominant Southern school that later on encompassed the well-known five houses, or there was the beginning of the five houses of Zen. Honglen's influence on Zen's historical development is difficult to overstate. That's from Andy Ferguson's book. Now the five houses of Zen were the Guiyang school, the Linji school, Rinzai, Kaodong school, Soto, the Faiyan school, and the Yunmen school. The Guiyan, Fayan, and Yunmen schools died uh, out after a few generations, and today we only have the Soto and Rinzai out of these fives. Now, if you want to learn more about the five houses of Zen, I would highly recommend reading The Golden Age of Zen by John C.H. Wu, in case you haven't read it. So it's a great portal, a great window to understanding the uniqueness of each of the styles of the houses and also the relevancy of their teachings to our lives. Although the schools have died, uh, they are, the, the teachings, however, are alive and well. Often they're brought up in a Quran study, Teshos, and different texts. So the teachings are alive. Another point to note about Honglen is that he received the golden robe that were passed on from Bodhidharma, and he was the last one to bestow these items to his successor, Huineng, who became the sixth and the last patriarch of Zen. From that point on, the tradition propagated in different directions, leading to the establishments of the five houses. So after the sixth patriarch, the, the ball and robe were no longer passed on from a teacher to successor. 
So the koan brought up today is taken from a collection titled The Transmission of the Lamp. And it describes the first encounter between Honglen and his teacher, Daoxin. So Honglen shows up at the monastery and Daoxin asks, what is your name? What's your name? Simple question that would typically receive a simple and immediate answer, right? Easy. I have a name. You have a name. We each have an intricate story that is attached to it. Kind of like a title of a book. The name of the book is engraved on the cover. That is my name. And the written pages describe the details of what you have gone through from the moment of birth up to now. The book of you, the book of me. It includes the way I look, the way I feel, my opinions, my likes and dislikes, my indifferences, and so on. It is highlighted at different points, has plenty of footnotes that explain why you did this, why you avoided that. There's also a commentary section that dives into the psychological and emotional intricacy of my existence. And it is trying to bond all the details of the story to a cohesive conglomerate that somehow gives the appearance of a solidified and fixed entity which the book title alludes to. Conventionally, a name is not just a word for us. When we introduce ourselves to someone and say, my name is so-and-so, we refer to all the pages in that book. To those we have written so far, or have been written so far, and to the blank pages that will follow in the same direction and will keep verifying the perpetual story. It's familiar and it's common. But we have to stop and ask, what is it that gives this conglomerate of details? The appearance of a solidified and fixed entity. What glues all those pages and what binds all those pages together to create a feel of a hardcover book. But not just that, it's the most cherished book for us. So Buddhism teaches that the five skandhas are at the heart of the illusory sense of a separate self. So the five skandhas binds seems to bind things or give the appearance of things being as they appear to us. The skandhas or aggregates are form, rupa, sensation, vedana, perception, samjna, mental formations, samskara, and consciousness, vijnana. 
Shengi says, beings don't actually come into being, but are a combination of the five skandhas. We just give them the name beings, but the name is actually empty because beings are empty. Beings are themselves Tathagatas, Buddhas, thus come one, by nature. But because their nature has become concealed by the five skandhas, they are blind to it. But they are not only blind, they haven't lost it. But, sorry, by they are only blind, they haven't lost it. Beings can never lose their self-nature, and their self-nature can never lose beings. Now we can't become deluded. We can't close our eyes. So, us being so, or beings being free or empty of beings, doesn't mean that that's what we will experience, or that's what we experience. So, looking at the skandhas, the skandhas themselves are natural ways we interact with the world, and therefore, by themselves, not an issue. The stickiness arises from the way we interpret the stimuli receives that we receive or perceive from the interaction with the world around us. And the way we compound the story from these interpretations. And this is what we need to investigate and see for ourselves. If I am indeed the fixed me that I think I am. Are the thoughts the experiences, the feelings, and the sensations actually create an unchanging entity. And if we truly look deeply into this matter and realize that the I is nothing but a constant change or constancy, then what does that, what does this realization verify? And this is precisely the point the Heart Sutra begins with. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva doing, doing the Prajna Paramita, doing. Clearly so, emptiness of all five skandhas, thus completely relieving misfortune and pain. Looking directly at the mechanism that weaves the story, the mechanism that writes the pages, or page after page after page of the book. Instead of taking the book for granted, looking at who is writing this book. So Avalokiteshvara, also known as Kannon or Kanzeon, is doing deep wisdom or we can say recognizing the manifestation of wisdom in moment-by-moment -moment activities. Looking at, examining change. Examining the one who is also changing. The reality, the truth of change. Now, what is being recognized? 
We call it independent, interdependent origination. Pratitya Samutpada. Seeing that all things are connected. Experiencing that I am you and you are me. That we are of the same essence. And seeing all that, experiencing all that, simply sheds light on the fixedness of the five skandhas, or the way they appear. So they appear to be affirming a sense of fixedness. Looking at that is shedding light on their emptiness. That they lack what they appear to be doing. They are not affirming what they seem to be affirming to us. And seeing the emptiness of all five skandhas means seeing that they lack the ability to create a self. And so we are left with nothing to defend, nothing to protect, nothing to elevate. And no worries or fear of being belittled or criticized or even perishing. Well, what is perishing? What dies? What is born? And then when we see, when we look into that and see that it lacks that solidity, then love, compassion, kindness can flow much more naturally. Because we are not stopping it from flowing. It actually wants to flow. We just have to get out of the way. Allow it. Now isn't that relieving misfortune and pain? Or isn't that shedding light on our creating of pay, extra pain? There is pain. But isn't that seeing how we create more pain from pain, more suffering from suffering. So to understand more, this is from uh, Chongyam Trungpa, I want to read a little bit. So to understand more precisely the process of confirming the solidity of I and other, that is the development of ego, it is helpful to be familiar with the five skandhas, a set of Buddhist concepts which describe ego in a five-step process. The first step of or skandha, the birth of ego, is called form or basic ignorance. We ignore the open, fluid, and intelligent quality of space like that, the intelligent quality of space, the wisdom of space. So four, when a gap or space occurs in our experience of mind, when there is a sudden glimpse of awareness, openness, absence of self, then a suspicion arises. Suppose I find that there is no solid me. That possibility scares me. 
I don't want to go into that. That abstract paranoia, that discomfort, that something may be wrong, is the source of karmic change reaction, chain reactions. It is the fear of ultimate confusion and despair. The fear of the absence of the self or the egoless state is a constant threat to us. And we, can, we can connect with that actually because in Zazen, if you sit long enough, you encounter moments of losing the known or losing touch with the known. Maybe floating, expanding a little bit, losing the, the defined outline, losing the grip, the tight grip on the story and the book, and expanding. And then we realize that this is happening, and then we run right back to the story and start to chew it over and over again because we do find comfort in that. That's what he's talking about, the fear of ultimate confusion and despair. It is very common in practice, but we have to learn to be comfortable with this discomfort if we want to expand, if we want to grow spiritually. If it is always a barrier to us and we keep going back to the story, we may be meditating for years and not experience much change or growth. So we have to teach ourselves to be comfortable with discomfort. And then he goes on to say, suppose it is true that there is no me. What then? I'm afraid to look. We want to maintain some solidity, but the only material available with which to work with is space, the absence of ego. So we try to solidify or freeze that experience of space. Ignorance in this case is not stupidity, but it is a kind of stubbornness. We are bewildered by the discovery of selflessness and we do not want to accept it. We want to hold on to something. So it does appear to be something, but it is by experience realized as nothing. And even realizing that it is nothing is not yet it, because the tendency is to run back to the something, to the creation of something. But what he's saying is this no more than holding up a ruler against the sky and saying, I, between this cloud and that cloud, five inches. Or this cloud is 10 inches. It appears solid. It appears to be defined by numbers as we appear to be defined by name. But it's no more than appearance. You may adjust.
Next one, sensations. But the next step is the attempt to find a way of occupying ourselves, diverting our attention from our aloneness. The karmic chain reaction begins. Karma is dependent upon the relativity of this kind, this and that, my existence and my projections. And karma is continually reborn as we continually try to busy ourselves. The restless mind goes on and on. And we go with that. In other words, there is a fear of not being confirmed by our projections. One must constantly try to prove that one does exist by feeling one's projections as a solid thing. Feeling the solidity of something seemingly outside you reassures you that you are a solid entity as well. Third one, perceptions. In the third stage, ego develops three strategies or impulses with which to relate to its projections. Indifference, passion, and aggression. These impulses are guided by perception. Perception in this case is the self-conscious feeling that you must officially report back to central headquarters what is happening in, in any given moment then you can manipulate each situation by organizing another strategy. That's how we keep ourselves, the image of ourselves alive. In the strategy of indifference, we numb any sensitive areas that we want to avoid, that we think might hurt us. We put on a suit of armor. Second strategy is passion, trying to grasp things and eat them up. It's a magnetizing process. Usually we do not grasp if we feel rich enough, but whenever there is a feeling of poverty, hunger, or lack, when we reach out, then we reach out, we extend our tentacles and attempt to hold on to something. Aggression, the third strategy, is also based on the experience of poverty, the feeling that you cannot survive and therefore must ward off anything that threatens your property or food or idea of self. Moreover, the more aware you are of the possibilities of being threatened, the more desperate your reaction becomes. You try to run faster and faster in order to find a way of feeding or defending yourself. The fourth one, perception the birth of the ego. Ignorance, feeling, impulses, and perception are all in instinctive processes. We operate a radar system which senses our territory, yet we cannot establish ego properly without intellect, without the ability to conceptualize and name. Since we have so many things happening, we begin to categorize them, putting them into certain pigeonholes, naming them. We make it official, so to speak. And the last one, consciousness, 
is the very active and efficient mechanism that keeps the, in the instinctive and intellectual processes of ego coordinated. Consciousness consists of emotions and irregular thoughts patterns. Irregular thoughts patterns. This is exactly what we recognize during Zazen. It's erratic. It's all over the place. We don't even know why this thought appears. That thought shows up. It's just, it's quite chaotic. And it's interesting. Being chaotic is not wrong. It's just the way it operates. It's how images and thoughts appear in the mind. And it's fine. As is. So he says all these irregular patterns, all of which taken together, form the different fantasy worlds with which we occupy ourselves. Is it more than a fantasy? We have to ask. The emotions are the highlights of ego, the generals of ego's army, subconscious thought, daydreams and other thoughts connect one highlight to another. So thoughts form the ego's army and are constantly in motion, constantly busy. Our thoughts are neurotic in, in the sense that they are irregular, changing directions all the time and overlapping one another. We continually jump from one thought to the next, from spiritual thought to sexual fantasies to money matters to domestic thoughts and so on. That's exactly what we experience when we sit. Well, not just when we sit, but when we sit, we actually get a chance to dedicate some time to seeing how it functions. And to see that while it functions that way, it, it lacks the solidity that it appears to be producing. That's why it's so important to take time to see it and look at the chaos instead of allowing the chaos to determine the way we move through life. Because if we don't look at it, moving through life also becomes chaotic, irregular, irrational, all over the place. So to summarize, says the whole development of the five skandhas, ignorance, form, feelings, impulses, perceptions, concepts, and consciousness is an attempt on our part to shield ourselves from the truth of our insubstantiality. The practice of meditation is a way to see through the transparency of that shield. To see that it is, that shield itself is transparent. It doesn't work, in other, in other words. So using the five skandhas, we piece together a mental image that we believe will protect us from the truth of impermanence and interconnectedness. But in reality, the solidity of the self is 
only an optical illusion, as Einstein put it. So what is there to shield? And maybe more important, what is there to dissolve? Do we need to work hard at dissolving something, at rejecting something, if that something is not sitting on anything solid? Who am I? What am I? So Hongren, when he showed up, he seemed to have an innate understanding of the fallacy of the self. Somehow he recognized it. And so when Dao Jin asked him, what is your name? He said, I have an essence, but it is not a common name. So what name is that? Asked Dao Jin. Hongren replied, it is the essence of Buddhahood. So then he asked, so you don't have a name? And Hongren replied, none, because essence is empty. So about 200 years later, there was a similar dialogue between Dongshan and Kaoshan. So upon meeting Kaoshan, Dongshan said, what is your name? And Kaoshan said, Benji. That was his family name. Dongshan said, what is your transcendent name? And Kaoshan said, I can't tell you. Dongshan said, why not? Kaoshan said, because there I, I am not named Benji. So the name Benji is true. And there I don't have a name is also true. And the challenge of our practice is to realize that the provisional name and the transcendent non-name are essentially non-dual. That here and there are always unified, present, and seamlessly manifest. And the five skandhas may create the illusion of a solid entity which seem to exist as separate from other beings and from the environment. But if we take time to look closely, deeply, and investigate this assumption, we can see that my name is only referring to a provisional self that for the time being appears and functions in, in this form. But in reality, you cannot be reduced to the sum of all your experiences, thoughts, emotions, regrets, aspirations, fears. You cannot be, even when you reduce ourselves to that, you cannot be reduced to that. You are much greater than what you can ever realize. We are much greater. Or we are greatness itself. So Hongren understood this when he was asked about his name and he said, it is the essence of Buddhahood and since this essence is empty, he has no name. It's true. 
He's not rejecting being called Hongren. He's not denying his personal story. He's not suppressing thoughts and emotions. And he's not turning away from the constant constancy of everyday life or the contents of everyday life. From the ups and the downs and everything in between. All he's doing is just expressing the fundamental truth of interconnectedness or interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh called it. And he knows that a name is no more than a word. And a word cannot contain the totality of what we are in essence. It's just a sound. Yet we become so attached to that sound. And that sound sounds very different than the sound of a bird. or any other sound that we happen to experience. This is my sound. This is me. Or the sound of me. And we are much greater than we can ever imagine, but to realize this, to realize this, we need to keep turning to the being within the form, to the silence within the sound and the stillness within movement. We're often so busy rushing about and so attached to words, names, definitions, we find ourselves getting lost in the franticness of everyday life. And Zen practice offers a portal to see directly into this eternal being that we are. From the silence and stillness of Zazen to the many gestures and signals that our tradition honed for many centuries. Formal Zen training is encouraging us to connect with each other in a much deeper way that goes beyond words and definitions. And so much of our practice is actually nonverbal. Right? We sit, we don't talk. We don't give instructions. We don't guide. There are different styles of meditation that are called guided meditation. More noise to add to the noise that's already going on in our heads. Why? Because we don't like silence. Because we find it terrifying at times. So please, I will med meditate, but please talk to me while I meditate. So I don't have to bear witness to my own mind. So from Zazen to all the other gestures and signals and bells and clappers and everything is essentially so we don't use words. So we learn to connect with each other and with our environment in a much more intimate way. Nonverbal communication can free us from our reliance on names, words, concepts, opinions, or personal stories. When we talk, there's often one personal story communicating with another personal story. 
one chaotic mind communicating with another chaotic mind. Yet when we don't talk, when we take the time to experience the power of silence and rest in it and find a home within silence, we realize that we can rest in it, that we can relax into it, that it does give solace to the chaos or the chaotic mind. And it's always available. It's always available. Same with martial arts. There is a saying in the martial arts, that as a student, you have to steal the technique rather than wait for it to be explained to you. You have to have the hunger. You have to examine, you have to watch, you have to pay attention with your entire body rather than open your mouth and wait for the spoon to come in. Like a baby. Feed me. Tell me what to do. Tell me what not to do. Is it correct? Is it wrong? Am I right? I want to hear it. Why? Because we don't trust our ability to pay attention. Remind me, somebody once told me that it was a seminar, karate seminar. This, this master was teaching. And somebody stopped and asked him, you know, could you explain what you just did? So the teacher looked at him and said, if you cannot see what I'm doing, what makes you think that you can understand what I'm saying? Because we think we understand. But it's not more than a thought. Meaning the understanding is not more than a thought. And somehow we find it satisfying. So the hunger for seeing reality as it is, that must be there. Wanting to intimately and directly connect with reality. Now where is it? Right? Where is that reality I want to connect with? So, fumbling with the phone to take care of a technical issue, is that a gap? Is that a pause? Is that not what reality, where reality is found? Is that not where I'm found? Is that not a way, possibly, to free myself from myself? You can adjust. So in, in Kazan's commentary, he says, there is a name that is not received from our parents, not from our ancestors, not inherited from anyone. And it's called Buddha nature or essence of Buddhahood or awakened essence if we don't understand what Buddhahood means. And then study, he says, is basically a way to reach the fundamental, to clarify the essence of mind. If you don't reach the fundamental, you live and die in vain, misunderstanding yourself and others. Misunderstanding yourself and others. Misunderstanding has to do with thinking that I am 
here and you're over there means we are separated. And I, I need to protect this and you have to protect that. That's misunderstanding yourself and others. And then as for what this fundamental essence is, he says, your features may differ as you die and born over and over again, but all times, at all times, there is an inherent awareness. So if there is an inherent awareness, and if we connect with that awareness, that awareness is realized, is recognized as no beginning and no end. Eternal. Not something to be possessed, to grasp, to look for. It's more something to rest in. Kazan's verse, the moon bright, the water pure, the autumn sky is clear. How could there be a fleck of cloud spot, spotting this great clarity? How can we cover it up? Right? The totality and magnificent beauty of reality is never obscured by names, definitions, or the constant churning of our mind. not hindered by personal challenges we experience. We just get distracted and allow our attention to drift away from the essential. So we need to work on, keep working on cultivating deep awareness so we can appreciate the precious totality that shows up right in front of our eyes as life unfolds. And if we don't pay attention, we live and die in vain. And that's a shame. So while we chant that at the end of Zazen, time swiftly passes by. Wake up, shake it up. What could be more important than that? What could be more important than embracing a practice that offers us freedom from ourselves. So I'll finish with a few words from Hafiz. Everyone knows that a drop of water is absorbed into the entire ocean, but if you know that the entire ocean is absorbed into one drop of water, Thank you.